What if you're winning for God, but losing at home? Could you live with that? Do you love your work? Do you think it's possible? Well, you're about to find out. It's time for 48 Days to the Work You Love with Dan Miller on the 48 Days Online Radio Show. Whether you need a professional tune-up or a work overhaul, this is the program for you. Now, here's your host, Dan Miller. Well, as you can tell from the lead-in, we got some doozies in the way of questions this week. As always, this is Dan Miller. We're going to be talking about real-life questions having to do with work success and life success. Well, thus, the question, the lead-in question that I've got is, Dan, my wife says she hasn't seen many people teaching other people and trying to save the world go very well in family life. Many divorces, child rebellion, etc., well, we're going to be talking about that. That's a real key question. A lot of you as listeners want to do good things in the world, and rightfully so. How do you balance that with the things you're responsible to do at home? Got a quotation for us that will tie in with that and some comments. Well, some other questions. After failing a job performance review at a company he worked for for 26 years, my husband is faced at the age of 64 with coming up with a new career. Dan, how do I best help my husband increase his confidence? Another husband question. How do I help my husband increase his confidence? He's got a new college degree, but he's depressed. He longs for something fulfilling. Somebody says, uh, I'm an SI on the DISC profile, and I find it very frustrating not being able to make decisive decisions. How do I break through this barrier? Hey, got a brand new resource for you in that. That comes from fear, and I got a really cool resource a free quiz that I'm going to give you and a place you can go to understand what kind of fear is holding you back. I was blown away in doing my own. Well, I'll tell you a bit more about that. Um, Dan, how do I put a value? Well, okay, here's a, here's a question. I'm college educated and I've been working since I was 16. How do I put a value in that 20 years of experience in college degree? Seems like all the avenues I find for moving up are with specific degrees. So I seem to be stuck on low level, low paying jobs. All right. Now that's just some of the meat we're going to dig into. Got some really cool, good news stories I want to share with you. And this is our quotation. Now, this is pretty strong language because it addresses that lead-in question, and it comes from a pretty strong book called the Bible in 1 Timothy 5, 8, where it says, but if any provide not for his own and specifically for those of his own house, he hath denied the faith and is worse than an infidel. Wow. Strong, strong language there. And we'll kind of unpack that. What does that mean? If you don't provide for your own, you're worse than an infidel. Well, here's some good news pieces. Here's a cool piece. A judge sentenced, this is in Ashburn, Virginia, a judge sentenced teen vandals to reading books about racism. Now, this was a couple years ago, because now we got the results in, but it worked pretty well. Now, what happened, rather than punishing a group of juveniles for a racist act of vandalism, this compassionate judge wanted them to understand the error of their ways and made them read books, and it apparently worked. Now, think about this. Think about your your own kids or how you were raised. I mean, if you paddle a kid, you know, just punish them. 
I mean, it's kind of short-lived, and they try to stay out of your sight for when they do it the next time, I suppose. I, I've talked about when our kids were little, we had them uh, endure attitude adjustments rather than punishment, like sitting in a corner with a timeout or getting their bottoms beat or whatever. No, they had attitude adjustments where we'd had them read something or listen more commonly, listen to cassette tape of one of those masters of achievement, Zig Ziglar, Jim Rohn, Dennis Waitley, Norman Vincent Peale, those kind of guys. And then they'd have to talk about it. Well, that shaped their thinking pretty effectively over the years. Well, this judge did essentially the same thing. This was back in September of 2016. Five teenagers were charged with painting graffiti on a historic old schoolhouse in Ashburn, Virginia. The schoolhouse, which had been used to teach black children during segregation, had been covered in swastikas, racist statements, and just other graphic designs that seemed typical misled youngsters. That's why prosecutor and Commonwealth attorney Alondra Ruda believed that the kids were lashing out. She felt she had a chance to turn the incident into an educational opportunity. The community just blew up over the vandalism, understandably. But you know, some of these kids didn't even know what a swastika meant, she said. So I saw a learning opportunity. With children, you can either punish or you can rehabilitate. These kids were kids with no prior record. I thought back to what taught me when I was their age, what opened my eyes to other cultures and religions, and it was reading. So instead of putting the kids on probation, this judge drew up a reading list of 35 different books that deal with the pain and tragedies of racial injustice. So she had authors like Ellie Weisel, Harper Lee, Maya Angelou, Alice Walker, you know, just others, others that she had on this list. The teens then were asked to read one of the books each month for a year. So they had to read 12 books. This is part of their sentencing. Their punishment for every book they read, they were asked to write a 3,500 word essay on the consequences of racism, bigotry, and prejudice. Additionally, these kids were made to visit the Holocaust Museum and a history museum exhibit on the Japanese American internment camps following Pearl Harbor. Two years after the incident, this judge's sentencing did exactly what she had hoped. The kids are sticking to their education. They, none of them have reoffended in any way. And based on their essays, as well as statements from their parents and lawyers, they're all embarrassed and regretful of their crime. In one of the essays, one of the boys concluded his rueful literary analysis by saying, everybody should be treated with equality, no matter their race or religion or sexual orientation. I will do my best to see to it that I'm never this ignorant again. Well, it made the judge cry when she got some of the reports. Now, this kind of changing behavior takes a little bit of time. It's not instantaneous. What a cool example of leading kids into new ways of thinking by giving them a reading assignment rather than having them, you know, spend three days in jail or whatever it might have been. Now, here's another story. When women shares photo of anonymous gift found in a book, it sparks a chain of good deeds. So anonymous act of kindness has sparked a ripple effect of good deeds across Missouri after a woman bought a $17 book from Target last week. This is just last week. 27-year-old Ashley Jost was shopping at the department store in Columbia when she remembered that she'd committed to doing a reading challenge with her friends. So she grabbed a copy of Girl, Stop Apologizing. It's Rachel Hollis's new book. Upon returning home, she sat down on her couch, started reading. And what she found when she flipped through there, uh, out dropped a $5 bill. 
Now she started thumbing through the pages to find a clue. And sure enough, she found in this brand new book that she had just purchased at Target, she found a pink sticky note tucked between the chapters. The note read, to the person who buys this book, I'm having a tough day. I thought maybe I could brighten someone else's with this little surprise. Go buy a coffee, donut, or a face mask. Practice some self-care today. Remember that you are love. You're amazing. You're strong. Love, Lisa. That was a note that somebody stuck in, a brand new book that was for sale along with a $5 bill. I mean, that's pretty ingenious, pretty creative, pretty innovative to do that. Well, this gal, Ashley, said, I thought it takes someone really special to divert the attention and energy on a bad day to improving someone else's. I know if I was having a tough day, I just want to sit in my pajamas, eat an ice cream. Well, she posted about that, and it prompted a flood of responses from people who've been inspired to do their own random act of kindness for a stranger. Even her father told her he was motivated to pay for the groceries of the person standing behind him at the store. So this gal, Ashley, committed to paying the good deed forward by spending $5 on good deeds every day for a week. So she did the same. She left a note and a gift card inside a library book, uh, gave a gift card to a friend going through a hard time, paid for coffee of the person behind her at Starbucks, those kind of things. I love these stories where people just uh, have something kind of creative that's a good deed, and it prompts an outpouring of other people wanting to do the same thing, wanting to get involved, wanting to help, and wanting, you know, just giving people an idea of a good deed is a, a pretty creative thing to do where it has this kind of a ripple effect. So think up what it is you can do that is that that's just going to pay it forward like that. And let me know what you're doing. Hey, again, as always, you can shoot those in to just ask Dan at 48days.com. Love to hear your stories about what you're doing to make the world a better place. Now, here's another one. Rather than calling the cops, this is the last one that we're going to go into our challenging question for this week. Rather than calling the cops on a hungry young thief, a 7-Eleven owner sends him home with even more food. Rather than calling the cops on a, a teenage boy, 13-year-old kid who was caught stealing snacks, this compassionate 7-Eleven owner sent him home with even more food. Now, the owner of the store had been managing you know, this convenience store over the weekend when one of his employees alerted him to this young teenager's suspicious activity. Upon reviewing the security footage, the owner saw that the youngster had been secretly pocketing snacks as he wandered up and down the aisles. So when he approached the counter, the owner asked him to reveal all the merchandise hidden in his clothes. Otherwise, he would call the police. Well, the guy confessed, you know, said he was simply stealing food because he and his younger brother were alone and they were hungry, had nothing to eat. So the owner told the team to go and collect Pizzas, chicken, sandwiches, fruits. He said, you know, these snacks are not sufficient eating food for a meal. So he gave him pizzas, chicken, sandwiches, fruits, meals from the aisles, so he could take them all home free of charge. Now, there was a customer who saw this unfolding and was stunned by what he observed happening because one of the cashiers had already called 911 and the owner told her to hang up, hang up the food. And he told this kid, you know, look, if you need food, I'll give you food. So he sent him home with several bags of food along with 10 bucks. Now, again, instead of punishing a kid like that, now certainly he needs to learn that stealing food is not an appropriate action. There needs to be some consequences. But what do you think is going to be a more lasting 
positive consequence if the police come and shake him down and take him to jail, or if this owner talks to him about his current situation, resolves the immediate issue, and perhaps gives him some kind of guidance to alleviate this problem moving forward. Just such great opportunities that we all have to do these kind of things that are going to help somebody out rather than just punish them for a bad decision. Well, let's go into our questions and get a ton of them uh, that um, are all challenging. So we'll see how far we get. Doesn't matter when we run out of time, we'll just uh, break and save some more for another day. This was left over from last week, one that I did not get to, that I felt deserved a little more attention than just uh, a minute at the end of the podcast last week. So this comes from John. And John says he's he's a member of the 40 Days Eagles community. Got a lot of fun things happening in there right now. This move that we just did over to Mighty Networks has been just amazing to watch. And I'm so thrilled having a community in a place where we're not inundated with all the distractions and, and intrusions that come with a Facebook group. So we moved it to a clean pure site where nothing but our own content is there called Mighty Networks. That's just a framework. It's still the 48 Days Eagles community. And if you haven't joined us yet, I'm not sure what you're waiting on because we've got some exciting things that uh, people are doing. We've got a quiz that people are taking. I'll help get you the link to the quiz here. I'll put the link to the quiz in the show notes for today as well, because uh, it's an easy quiz. You take it and it'll identify which of six levels you're at as an emerging eagle. If you're still in the nest, if you're just incubating, if you're an eaglet, if you're fledgling, and it's really cool based on these questions that you answer, which of those levels you're you're at? Well, then those levels we have identified in the 48 Days Eagles community with action tips and resources so that you aren't overwhelmed with the same kind of information that somebody who's already doing a million dollars in their business is dealing with, but where it addresses where you are right now, the things you can do to then move forward and move up another level. Anyway, fun stuff. I'll put the link to that quiz in there. So this is, so this question is the one we want to break down. Um, I love your idea of how you got started through ministry. I'm involved in a nonprofit religious organization. Now I'm going to, I'm going to skip these kind of a two part question, but I want to focus on just the one part of this. So he's involved in the nonprofit religious organization. Then he says, how do I get my wife to believe in me? She does to an extent, but she fears that the nonprofit pulls me from my family. She also says that she hasn't seen many people teaching other people and trying to save the world where it goes very well in their family life. Lots of divorces, child rebellion, and so on. Wow. This is a tough, tough issue. How many people do you know? Now, I'm going to address your question specifically, John, here with your situation. But I'm going to use as an example some things that have been confronted, that other people have been confronted with as well. When I saw your question, I immediately thought of Peter Greer's amazing book, The Spiritual Danger of Doing Good. Now, Peter is CEO of Hope International, an amazing organization that does good work all around the world, and he's very committed to doing that work. Here's on the front flap of this book, The Spiritual Danger of Doing Good. 
Here I was in the front lines, personally handing out blankets and helping families that had lost almost everything. Noble cause, noble mission, noble actions of a 25-year-old relief worker. A photographer snapped pictures, and I smiled wide for the camera as I did God's work. And the thought running through my head was not about the people receiving the blankets. I thought, I can't wait until the people back home see these photos of me. When I saw the photos a few weeks later, I trashed them with a flaky smile plastered on my face. I could only see the photos as incriminating evidence of an unhealthy heart condition. Captured on film, I recognized myself as play acting for people far away, not thinking about loving the people right in front of me. I had just discovered that there are spiritual dangers to doing good. Now, I'm going to, I want to share a little bit more from this book. There's really three resources that address this very, very clearly. The Spiritual Danger of Doing Good by Peter Greer, Toxic Charity by Bob Lupton, and When Helping Hurts, Steve Corbett. Those are the three resources I recommend this space. This is tough. When you want to do something worthwhile, you want to be involved in a church or parachurch or nonprofit organization, doing good in your community, or maybe somewhere else on the other side of the world, people are drawn to go to places like Haiti, Dominican Republic, and Africa. Certainly, a lot of good things being done there. But how do we balance this with responsibility to take care of our family first and without support of our family in doing these things. How can we justify that? Now, Peter continues in his introduction. For virtually my entire life, I've been actively involved in ministry and I've had the privilege of attending great churches, being on prayer teams, participating in mission trips, volunteering locally and abroad, and working full-time in international missions and development. And I've noticed something alarming. While charity can harm others, doing good can also wreak havoc on us. I've seen friends and mentors throw themselves into the causes of justice and do extraordinary work for Jesus. I admired their passion, their devotion, their sacrifice. But despite their extraordinary dedication, things went wrong. Burnout, infidelity, lost faith, financial compromise, personal meltdowns. My heart breaks for these friends and the ministries they worked so hard to build. A little bit farther on, he says, in my zeal for justice and mercy, I made service, a good thing, into the ultimate thing, opening myself to pride, doubt, and approval seeking. My heart unguarded, I found myself vulnerable to the spiritual dangers of doing good, and I'm afraid I'm not alone. The church today is zealous, and we're doing great things. But my concern is that in doing great things for God, we will forget what we are becoming. Without a clear understanding of why we serve, we risk a backlash of relational ruin, spiritual disillusionment, and personal burnout. Now, Peter got to the point as CEO of a national, big, big organization, got to the point where his wife said, you are choosing your ministry over me and I feel nothing for you. He says, I'd been away more than a hundred nights a year. Even more of those nights, I'd come home from work late, not having dinner with my kids. Laurel, my wife, was virtually operating as a single mom. Mom, I was building a successful ministry. I was so focused on the demands and feeling of worth at work that I missed both the joy and significance of my key role as a husband and father. Now, this is something we've had a lot of conversations in the Miller household about this. I mean, 
how, what is our responsibility to be involved in good organizations outside of our home to give our time, money, resources, adopt other kids? I mean, we can go on and on with the kind of things that certainly are appealing, certainly are good things to do. But there's a whole lot of, there's a whole lot of guidance for this. Certainly, I already shared our quotation for today, being a verse, First Timothy 5.8, that says, again, in a little bit different translation here, but if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse, worse than an infidel or worse than an unbeliever. Now, the desire to help more people is certainly a worthy one. But in clarifying just with my own kids this last week, a conversation about this, I said, sure, I feel that responsibility. And the opportunity to help a lot of people is extremely rewarding. But I have a need to serve my own family first. My first responsibility is to my immediate family, then others outside of that. Certainly, I don't have a responsibility equally for everybody on the face of the earth. No, it starts with my family. So what if you did this, John, what if you did this? And again, a lot of particulars, I don't know about your particular situation, but what if you tithe your time? I mean, would that be at least some kind of guidelines that maybe your wife would be more supportive of? You imply, you know, you're spending a lot of time in this nonprofit. Sure, there's a lot that needs to be done. I mean, it could be you know, the mission that we have, you know, union mission that we have here in Nashville. I mean, we have here in Williamson County, where I live, which is a county just south of Nashville. Nashville's in Davidson County, so that's a big county. Williamson County is more rural. It's where Franklin is. It's where I live. There are over 200 nonprofits that are registered in this county. Over 200. There's no end to the good causes that you can be involved and be committed to. But rather than having that steal time from your family, what if you tithe your time? So if you work 40 hours, then you can give four hours of service to another organization. I would recommend you put some boundaries around it in that way. Just last week, Joanne and I were having dinner with some friends and he was talking about uh, years ago at this point, but he was uh, doing some really good work. It was very profitable for his family, and uh, he was very proud of what he was doing. It was well-received. He was flying internationally to stay on top of things. Thus, he was not home a whole lot. Well, he came home one night. His six-year-old daughter had just gone to bed. He ran upstairs. He said, oh, honey, I want to read you a book tonight. She said, I don't want you to read me a book. He says, well, I don't get to very often. You know, I'm home. I want to read a book. I want mommy to read me a book. He says, well, honey, I'm, I'm your daddy. You know, I, I really want to read you a book. She says, you're not my daddy. You're my uncle. And he said it was like somebody stabbed a knife into his heart. He went downstairs, told his wife, something's got to give. This has got to stop. He immediately put in place a process to sell his company changed his life dramatically. Probably, you know, without going into real specific details, probably walked away from millions of dollars. But today he has a really special relationship with that little girl who's now grown up. She's 24 years old. Wow. To be told that. Now, because of what you're addressing here, John, and we're going to, we're going to move on. I love your question. It deserves 
books being written about it, which there are, fortunately. And again, I'll give you the, the list of what the, what those are that I recommend. But because of exactly what you're talking about, years ago, I decided I would not serve on any nonprofit boards. Now, that may sound harsh, and I certainly don't recommend that for everybody. I just know that it doesn't work well for me. They move far too slowly, typically are not efficient, and I detest the idea of begging for money. I think it's a whole lot easier just to find a legitimate way to make money and then fund whatever you want to do. So if you want to fund a nonprofit, just find a way to make money. Or if you want the the organization itself, do something that we call in that space of social entrepreneurship, where yes, it's doing good, but it funds itself. I mean, look at companies like Pura Vida or Tom's Shoes where you buy a pair and they give a pair. He wanted to be able to do that. But instead of starting a nonprofit and asking for donations, he started a legitimate for-profit company that has given away millions of shoes because the way he structured it. I think there are too many opportunities to do that. So I do not serve on any nonprofit boards. It's just frustrating for me. I, I come home exhausted emotionally um, because of the way things are typically done. So you got to find your own space in this. I mean, those of you listening, I mean, you can find all kinds of ways to be of service. But we've got to have some parameters around that. You know, I would suggest, you know, tithing your time, perhaps. So you've got some strict guidelines on how much time you can give, even with money. You know, sometimes people pride themselves they're going to give away 50% of their income. You know, in the Jewish tradition, it's forbidden to give away more than 20%. Now, you can tie, that's going to be 10%, but they forbid you to give away more than 20%. They see it as irresponsible for your family, whatever it is you're doing. And of course, if you have, you may have enough money that 80% of your income is far beyond what your needs are. There's certainly other things you can do, but in the Jewish tradition, it's more responsible to start another business in terms of making the world a better place than it is to just give to a charity. Well, I probably really opened a can of worms there. We'll come back to that at another time, perhaps. Well, I hope that's helpful. Again, I commend all of you who are doing worthwhile things and certainly Joanna and I want to continue doing that, but we have some pretty clear guidelines. We're very comfortable with and love the way that we can move in and out of service projects and service organizations, but we've got some pretty clear guidelines for how that works well for us. Well, this comes from Ella. It says, Dan, I'm a recent college graduate with a degree in elementary education, unconvinced that I was to remain in this field. My love of children and love of learning drew me to it initially, but after student teaching, I believe a classroom teacher position would not highlight my strengths. Now, I'm going to skip down. This is a long letter from Ella here, but essentially she knows she has the ability to be effective as a teacher, but she doesn't think it highlights her strengths. Now, this is a classic situation, Ella, that people are confronted with and usually wait to address it until they're much older than you. So I commend you on looking at this right out of the gate, a recent college grad, knowing that the most ready opportunity for you is to get a, get a job as a teacher. And yet your heart's not in that. You don't think it highlights your strengths. Just recognize what you really want to do is look at, you know, take a fresh look, like I lay out in 48 Days to the Work You Love, your skills and abilities, your personality traits, and your values, dreams, and passions. So you may have the ability 
to do well as a classroom teacher. But if it doesn't blend your personality traits and your values, dreams, and passions, you're looking for a recipe for burnout. And I have seen plenty of people over the years, attorneys, physicians, dentists, pastors, and others who have proven their ability to do what they do really well. And they can thrive financially, but they hate the life they've created because it doesn't highlight their strengths. It doesn't engage their passions, the things they care about most. So don't think that's your only option. The world is full of possibilities. Take a fresh look at what it is that you, you know, go back and revisit. Hopefully you have a personal mission statement. Go back and revisit that. What is that? How do you want to be remembered? What are those things that really make you unique? The things that only you can do. There are a lot of people who walk into a classroom and teach effectively. What is it that you do that's really unique that sets you apart? And then look for opportunities to engage that. I'm working with a a gentleman right now. He's 44 years old. He's done really, really well in the career that he is in. But he realizes that he's kind of hit a ceiling. Even though he's moved up in responsibility, now he's in a sales position where his compensation is three times what it was 10 years ago. I mean, those things are good, but he realizes the only real value of the position he has now is to create income. It doesn't engage the best of who he is. So we're taking a fresh look without sabotaging his job, without changing that. But we know that in 48 days, we're going to have a completely new plan for him to walk into the next season of his life. So you're at the very beginning of your career, but you can do right now what most people wait until they're 44 years old to start looking at. Again, there's value in those early years of of doing something. I mean, don't just sit on a rock and try to figure it out. There's value in doing something, even if you know it's not a perfect fit. But you have enough insight, it seems, in your situation right now that you can do this and get on a better track right out of the gate. All right. This comes in from Donna. After failing a job performance review at a company I worked for for 26 years, my husband is faced at the age of 64 with coming up with a new career. Job coach gave me your book two years ago as an assignment, but he never completed it. What can a wife do besides nagging, which doesn't work to help her husband find a new path and a new direction? Part-time work at the local big box store is just not getting him anywhere. Help. Well, I commend you on wanting to help your husband. I know it's that old thing, you know, a prophet hath no honor in his own hometown. You know, sometimes those closest to you are the ones you're least likely to listen to. So I would encourage you to talk to his friends, you know, get them involved as well. Make sure your husband doesn't isolate himself. This may be a time of embarrassment at 64 to lose your job and then just be working a part-time job at a big box store. Yeah, that can be kind of tough. But make sure there are other people in your center of influence who are speaking into him. You know, you might drop a hint to a couple of friends of his to maybe take him to lunch or breakfast to talk to him, to again, recommend that he, you know, open up that 48 days to the work you love, to be more, golly, be more specifically directed in this process of finding what fits him, not just to get a job, but really take a fresh look at who he is, what makes him tick. Now you can help him in that as well. Say, you know, I noticed, notice when you're doing this, you really come alive. You know, is that true? Or I've noticed it's when you're around older people that you somehow really engage with them well. 
You know, do you notice that about yourself? So give him feedback about himself, those things that he does really well to give him more clarity on what he can do. Well, let me move on here. This is another one that's similar to this. Carla says, how do I best help my husband increase his confidence? Uh, my wonderful husband is in his 40s, recently graduated from college. Um, his career has included a variety of jobs that lose their appeal once the initial challenge is conquered. He recently told me about a meeting where his coworkers expressed a great deal of appreciation and praise, but each one concluded with, but you lack confidence. He's depressed. He longs for something fulfilling, feels that there's no hope. I recently purchased your book. We were reading, discussing it together. Please help me help him. He's amazing. One of the kindest, most honest people you ever meet. Wow. Carl, I, I appreciate your heart for where your husband is. And there are things you can do to help him with his confidence. Now, one of the things I'm going to do, I'm going to send you an audio that we have on, on that specifically how to increase your self-confidence. So I'll send you the link to that where you can listen to that there's some specific steps in there. Now, in terms of the general, how do you increase your self-confidence? I mean, I love books like The Magic of Thinking Big by David Schwartz, where he talks about walk 25% faster. You know, if you go to the mall and just sit there and watch people going by, you can tell a whole lot about people without ever talking to them. Just watch how they carry themselves, how they walk, how they engage with other people, how they look at you. If you do have an opportunity to meet them, those kind of things. So there are tips you can use, you know, to smile big. It's impossible to be depressed if you're smiling. You know, listen to positive material, read positive books, and be a front seater. If you go to an event, sit in the front seat, not the back where you give yourself the option to slip out the door. No, those, there are very clear things that you can do that will, in fact, help your husband increase his self-confidence. Now, the biggie, obviously, is his desire to do so. I mean, without that, it's hard to force feed him something, um, but... It sounds like he is open to that. If he knows that he's telling you that his coworkers say you like self-confidence, boy, there are ways that you can do that. And we're going to send you some resources for that. Well, hey, just a quick insert here with the music to remind you, these are real life questions. I consider it an honor each week to scroll through questions that you all submit. A lot of you are engaged in the 48 Days Evening community and there you post your questions and get an answer immediately from people who are competent and smart in that community. I love seeing that happen. If you got one you want us to share here and kind of unpack it together, just shoot it into me at askdan at 48days.com. Again, just a simple email, askdan at 48days.com. All right, this one comes from Phil. who says, I'm trying to start an audit and risk consulting firm geared toward financial institutions. However, I'm currently employed by a financial institution. I'm trying to phase out of my job over the next one to two years while paying off some debt. I want to use the next couple of years to market and build relationships with potential clients for my business and maybe do a few freelance projects on the side. My question is, should I tell my employer what I'm trying to do? I really like my job. Don't want to put it in jeopardy. All my business pursuits would be off company time. No, do not tell your company. Now, I'm not a fan of being secretive or doing things behind somebody's back. But in this case, absolutely not. 
I mean, don't tell them what I recommend. And you hear me talk about this often here. What I recommend is that you build your side business to where it's generating 50% of your current income that puts you in a really good place where you know that if you committed the rest of your time to building your side business, it would close that gap very quickly. And that also would put you in a position where you're not vulnerable if somebody did find out about it and you know, you're getting ready to then give your notice, but it's way too early. If you want to be there for one to two years yet, and you tell your company what you're doing, you're building on the side and hope to build that to a full time. Wow. You've just put yourself into the position of a lame duck. They're going to withhold projects from you. They're going to know that you already have one foot out the door. And really it would not be unexpected at all. If they simply said immediately, well, if you're not really full full steam on board here, you know, just go ahead and clean out your desk. You can consider this your last day. It would be very, very legitimate for them to do that. So there's no reason for you to share this early out. I'm going to have as a Monday mentor in our 48 days Eagles community in, um, I think it's one of the Mondays in June, a young man who I saw as a client just recently who has a job that he's had for 24 years. And they love him there. He does great work, but he has been building on the side for three years now, a side business. Nobody at his company knows that's going on. He's a very quiet, conservative guy. He just kept his mouth shut. He's been building this on the side. He has systems in place. He doesn't take, you know, it doesn't take energy or time away from his primary job. But last year, 2018, his side business netted him more than twice the income that he makes in his full-time job. So now he's very carefully planned that in October of this year, he is going to give his notice and quit. Boy, there's, there's a way to do it. I mean, build your side business to the place that you've replaced your income totally and more, then tell them at work what you're doing and create your own exit plan. All right. This comes from Mark. This, I love this question. It, it, the question is, can I be a caffeine coach? And it's, it's written kind of a, well, it's got it in parentheses, you know, LOL. I just got an offer to work with a coach to get me off caffeine, a caffeine coach. Can one actually make money doing that? I've gotten off caffeine more than once. have consciously chosen to stay on it, but I quit. Does that qualify me to be a caffeine coach? I guess I could also be an alcohol coach in AA, we call that a sponsor, a cigarette coach, and a rubbing tobacco coach. Dan, you're only 10 years older than I, so I value your opinion. But the world is the world going coach crazy? I think coaching is great for many, many things, but caffeine? Well, <laughs> Mark, that's not unreasonable at all. If somebody wants to be a caffeine coach, I mean, they'd be kind of a strange terminology to use, but a stop smoking coach or whatever. Sure, that's very legit. I mean, we encourage our coaches who come through our coach training to be very specific in what it is they do, not to be a generalist. Gee, just tell me what ails you and I'll help you. No, be very, very clear on what it is that you do to help people. Now, here's an example. So I don't think it's unreasonable. I don't think it's preposterous. No, I think it's not not a bad idea. We have a brand new lady in our coaching mastery program. She was born in Nigeria. She is a nurse and an attorney 
and she has a master's in zoology. How, uh, get that around your head. She's a nurse, an attorney, you know, credentialed degrees, and has a master's in zoology. Obviously, high standards for academic career excellence. She has four children. She wrote about them in her application. Her first two daughters are physicians, age 30 and 31. Her son has two months left to graduate with his doctorate in physical therapy. He's 26. Her last daughter is just starting a master's degree program at Vanderbilt University. She's 24. It's amazing to see the repeated patterns in people who come here as immigrants and what they achieve. Their goals seem to just surpass a whole lot of other people. Now, so here's a lady who has multiple professional degrees herself. She has four children who are already high achievers. But here's how we're helping her position herself in parenting. She's done some YouTube videos under the title Parenting in Dysphoria. Now, that may seem like a term that you may not may not ring a real clear bell. Diaspora is addresses the issue of being away from your original homeland. That's what it is. Now think about that. What she addresses, and of course she's got a she's got a video that addresses the top five mistakes immigrant parents make. And she talks about should you teach your child your native language in addition to English? What should you do in encouraging them in careers? How far you go with pushing them into a professional career as opposed to letting them do something perhaps um, that doesn't seem to be as predictable in terms of income, job security, career advancement, and so on. You know, what do you do? She talks about the, the mistakes immigrant parents make. Now think about, uh, there, uh, there's no political commentary in this at all. Boy, don't go there. But think about the number of immigrant parents here who are dealing with that. Gee, they're from Mexico, so the native language is Spanish. You know, do you go back and forth? Do you keep in touch with the people there? Do you totally integrate and read the culture here? What do you do? She is going to position herself as a coach for parents like that. Now, I, I deal with a pretty large number of people who, as professionals, again, at 45 or 47 years old, realize they're living out their parents' dream. Got a young lady I just finished our intentional life process with who was born in Vietnam. She came here as a seventh grader, lived on a couch with some unwelcoming relatives, worked her way through high school herself, went to school, got graduate degrees, and she has done extremely well, you know, six figure plus income. But she realized she is living her parents' dream, not her own. She's living out of her head without her heart being connected. So it was a marvelous process of working with her to get her in touch with her heart and give her for the first time in her life an opportunity to really look at who she is, what her goals are. Now she's moving on. She quit her job, but she moved geographically to a new location. It was much better for her family. She has a new position that's a much, much better fit for her. 
she's uh, teaching yoga. She's doing some things personally to really uh, that are expressions of her heart's desires. Wow. Now, again, the question was, <laughs> is it unrealistic to be a coach in a particular year? No. We have coaches who are coaching people who realize they have to make decisions about their parents' well-being. Should we have them go into a nursing home, independent living? You know, what is the next step going to be? We have coaches who coach people like that. I think it's marvelous. We have people who coach, obviously, in, you know, career, marriage, parenting, career, finances, but the list is very, very long. We have uh, somebody who's a gardening coach. I mean, I think that's cool. So obviously we attach coach to just somebody who is a teacher trainer, but being positioned as a coach where you really go through the principles of coaching well, I think is a great way to start. Incidentally, those of you who, who may want to position yourself as a coach, we, you know that's a very, very common question for us because we do a lot of training of coaches. So it's a very common question. If you want to see if you're ready we got a short quiz for you. If you just go to 48days.com slash ready, R-E-A-D-Y, 48days.com slash ready, short quiz there, and we'll help give you some feedback about whether or not you are ready to be a coach. All right, let me grab a few more here. Danny says, um, Dan, I'm a 47-year-old full-time firefighter who seems to be constantly seeking a new direction and clarity in the workplace without attaining it. I'm an SI on the DISC profile. find it very frustrating in not being able to make decisive decisions. How do I break through this barrier? I crave adventure, freedom, and acquiring a whole new skill set. The thought of making a new commitment. Wonder what else I will be missing out on. A mental barrier that ties me in knots at times. Fresh perspective would be most welcome. Well, golly. Not making decisions is really based in fear. The fear that you're missing out, you know, you're, you're going to somehow regret what it is you do. This week I interviewed Ruth Sukup, delightful gal. She's got a brand new book out called Do It Scared. Well, I've given a lot of book recommendations today, but Do It Scared. There's an assessment that you can go through that identifies what is the fear so I'll put that link to that assessment in the show notes to help you understand what fear it is that's holding you back. Again, this is delightful. I was amazed, awed, and blown away at the feedback you got about me and how I hide behind fear and keep it from moving in So I hope it'll help you as well and how you can get past that into the kind of things that are blocking you and open up new doors of opportunity you can move past. Well, golly, appreciate this time with each of you. Uh, each week, you to consider it a high honor to be part of sharing in your lives in the way that we do here. If those questions, you can shoot those in to askdan at 48days.com. And include those in upcoming shows. Got several that I didn't get to here this week. I've referenced them in the intro. I apologize. We'll pull those up. Start with those next week. We'll move into those and more as well. Again, check out 48dayseagles.com. We've got a lot of exciting things happening there. People are getting ideas and resources to break loose, to get them out of the barriers that are holding them back. I don't think there's of opportunity for them. Again, thanks for being part of this growing body of excited, creative, innovative, creative people who 
know we can find what work that day. is meaningful, purposeful, and don't let it go. You don't have to settle for less. It's gonna take your whole heart. It's gonna take all 